some of those things we take for granted, especially being Australian, you know, having kids, owning a house, sort of growing old with a loved one, something like that. I've had to sort of change my sort of outlook on life as that, that that isn't that white picket fence probably isn't going to happen for me in my life. Hello and welcome to the 25 Stay Alive podcast, an inspiring, real and raw conversation with Hugo and Willie, two army mates and cancer survivors who are passionate in helping the lives of other young men and women. Welcome everyone and thank you for tuning in to the first ever 25 Stay Alive podcast. We're both very excited for what we have planned, and welcome, Willie. Hey, mate, and hello to everyone else out there. To just read out what Hugo said, yeah, we're incredibly, incredibly excited to have this this launching and this be the first podcast that we've done. Exactly right. And so the first, uh, I suppose, episode will be focusing on Willie's incredibly inspiring journey. So for all of those who don't already follow him, he's got a very open and honest Instagram page, willie.beating.cancer, and he basically documents his journey with a post most days throughout his, his current situation. So we're basically just going to talk about his, his journey right back from when he joined the army to, to where he is today. But so before we get into that, the 25 Stay Alive podcasts will basically cover everything in regards to health and well-being, typically targeted towards younger men and women. But along the way, we're going to interview some, some inspiring men and women and from all, all walks of life. And so we've got a lot of, lot of exciting things planned for it. So we thought the uh, best way to get stuck into it would be talking about each one of our stories. And we thought, why not start off with Willie's remarkable story? So Willie, I'm just going to get you to tell all our listeners out there. Uh, let's sort of backtrack three years or so. And for everyone who doesn't know you, I suppose, let's talk to Willie when he was, you know, just before he joined the army. Yeah, well, as I'll say, little Willie, little Willie back in high school, you know, getting ready, to, getting ready to join the army, and you know that's uh, well close enough on five years ago now. Yeah, so it seems like a while back. Oh, t- time does fly. I look back at when I joined, and I was like, oh no, I'm no different to that. And I look at a photo and be like, oh god, I've been around the world, I've experienced more than some people and less than others. But God, it's it's grown me. So you joined Kapuka straight from school. Yeah. So for those of you who don't have a military background or, or much military knowledge, I'm a, I'm a soldier. So I went through Kapuka, Hugo was an officer and then went, went that stream. But yeah, so I joined straight out of high school. So two days after my graduation, I ended up uh, at Kapuka, you know, straight in, marching around, no idea what I was doing, bit of deer in the headlights. And then on from there for the next three months, 80 days. So three months all up and and I suppose, how did you find those three months, I guess, adjusting from civilian life and, and being in school and, and living at home to, to three months on the deep end, I suppose? How did you, uh, how did you adjust to, to that lifestyle? Yeah, it's one of those, those massive changes. You know, I went from a student you know, in a small country town, Warnable in Victoria, to, you know, thrown into a uniform in sort of a really grown-up's position in the army. And that transition, you know, that, that is, and I'd, I'd still say the hardest thing I've done in defence is Kabuka being... You know, I went from a stay of three months to make you from a civilian into a into a soldier. Yeah, the three month transition, which is which is obviously so vital for for all the all the soldiers. Like you said, transitioning from from an everyday civilian to to being you know trained as as the basic soldier skills, I suppose. But there's a lot that goes into that, and 
So after three months of, of Kapuki, you then joined, not joined, but commenced uh, training at, at Singleton, which uh, for those listening is for, uh, for the infantry soldier. Uh, and then how long was Singleton, mate? Yeah, so, so Singleton, like you said, is at the commencement of Kapuka, and that is, for memory, it's 13 or 14 weeks with the pre-week in that. And that is to take, you know, from a basic soldier, which everyone is in the army, um, all, OAs, all other ranks of soldiers, to into a, a rifleman in the ADF. So that is, you know, an incredibly rewarding but tough, say, three and a half months where, you know, every week, and, and a lot of people, a lot of infantrymen will say, you know, it's the most rewarding time in, in their defence career being, you know, every week you're doing something something different but sort of unique and cool, if you will. You know, you'll do a week of, you know, urban or a week of high explosives on the range or or anything. But anyone who's been to Singleton will know how challenging, you know, physically and mentally it can be and even even emotionally with you've got a lot of a lot of young guys. You know, I was 18, 18 years old there doing some incredibly, incredibly tough things. But I look back on it as one of the best things I've ever done in defence. So what age were you, mate, when you finally finished your Kapuka training, your Singleton training, and you were ready for the, uh, your career, I suppose, in the Army? Yeah, yeah. So I, I went through Kapuka as 18 and most of Singleton being 18 and then turned 19 right near the end of Singleton, actually. And then I jumped in, got moved across to Adelaide, posted to a battalion, to the 7th Battalion over there, and I was uh, freshly 19. And that's where I've been for the remainder of my career, well, for the rest of my career up, and, up until this point. But uh, seven, you know, I, I deployed when I was 21 with seven. So I've been there ever since, but it's been, you know, an awesome ride for the last, say, three or three and a half years. And you mentioned being deployed then. So you were roughly at seven, seven RR for two years. And then you went on a deployment to Afghanistan, uh, which you were 20 at the time. And I believe you celebrated your 21st birthday over in Afghanistan. Yeah, I sure did. That was definitely an interesting one. But uh, every every one of my other birthdays has been either outfield or on deployment since. So it's, it it hasn't been you know a big change, but it was definitely one to remember. Just off uh, thinking about it, my twenty first birthday I spent in Canberra at a little bar called uh, called Shooters, and I was went out with some mates and was uh, ended up finding them by myself at the bar having a few tequila shots with the bartender. So that was kind of uh, my happy twenty first. Hugo. Whereas your 21st birthday over, over in Afghanistan serving your country, they're, they're slightly different, but look, it's... Um... Slightly different, but for those who were there with me, I, I did a shoey at it from a non-alcoholic beer uh, that, we, that we got off some of the guys on base. So there's still a shoey done at the end of a long day, but, but yeah, definitely different to a lot of 21sts out there. Yeah, no, absolutely. So you spent around eight, nine months all up in Afghanistan yeah, and correct. You, you, yep, and you celebrated your 21st birthday there and you're still still so young. You're still very fresh in your army career and having never deployed myself, albeit being being medically downgraded for most of it, it was uh, looking back on it now, um, spending such a long time over there as a crew commander in Afghanistan for over eight months deployed. Looking back on it, what do you think the number one thing you would say was the most difficult Thing, I suppose to, to adjust to or adapt to or just looking back on it what do you think the number one most difficult thing was being over there yeah it, it's a hard one to really point stuff out um, and I had a very a very rewarding trip and I enjoyed you know all of it but I think probably the main thing that was challenging and throughout the trip is it is a long time to be away you know I was away for eight and a half to nine months away from Australia away from home and that is you know, for anyone it doesn't matter what you do that is a long time just to be out of Australia or out of your home country 
So that was a challenge, and especially in the beginning where, you know, the days seem to go really slow. You, you know, you're five days in and you're like, oh, my God, I've got, you know, 230 more days to go. Yeah, wow. Uh, you, know, you, you get through it and, and it is really enjoyable. It's a long time and, and like you said, it's no doubt you, you made some extremely good friends who are probably to this day some of your, your closest mates and you, you learn a lot about each other and I suppose they are your, your family and I think we spoke offline about this. We've both obviously been through a lot through our, our journey, I suppose, medically and through our health and you actually mentioned it offline, which I, I really like that way you put it. You said the army is like one big giant family and I, I think you would have really experienced that a lot, especially being overseas, uh, not just with your, your health stuff, which we'll, we'll touch on later, but more so just that family mentality of the army is, is something that I personally found extremely comforting and so thankful for all the support, which I think you would, uh, you'd probably be the same. Oh, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with more with that, 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 that sort of family, and especially from my experience deploying, that, that family that you sort of deploy with and you come home with, I still keep in contact with you know, pretty much all of the guys that I was over there with and, you know, we always share stories and whatever. And then you come home and you, you remain that. But to sort of touch more on that, the army family extends into your family. that's not in the army. So, you know, there was a lot of support groups and whatever set up for, you know, parents and spouses and everything back here and, and kids and everything while we were away. Well, it sounds, yeah, it sounds like you had a, a pretty unique time over there with, with your age and, and uh, I suppose, like I said, oh, celebrating that 20, 21st, but as it kind of came to the the middle mark, so for those for those listening, you get a what's called rockle, which is a, a leave period during the not necessarily the middle part, but at some stage during a deployment where you can uh, have a have a few weeks off to kind of uh, regroup and and obviously not eight nine months is a, a very long time. So where did you decide to venture to, mate? Yeah, so my rockle, well, it's rockle rock for so one is return to home and one is the army fund you on a on a trip. Well, not fund you, they they give you a bit of a bit of money. What is the return flight to Rome? As far as funding now, me and one of my mates uh, Griffo, we planned to go to fly to Italy into Rome, travel around, and then we spent eleven days travelling through Greece. What was you know as wild as you could you could sort of tell being on a contiki through the Greek islands, but then just luck fell that. At the right, the end of my Rockle Rockva was Anzac Day. So Griffo somehow slyly got in on to a really high rank in the army and sort of dropped in that, you know, two of us are going to be away as deployed guys in France on Anzac Day. What do you think about maybe hooking us up with you going somewhere? And it came through that we ended up in Villes Bretonneux for the dawn service and all the services that ran through the day. And that was one of the most rewarding things sort of of, of the of my deployment, I'd say, was actually travelling through. Yeah, well, that's, that sounds like an incredible sort of one of those bucket list type things you can tick off, especially, you know, being being such a, a passionate army guy like I know you are, to, to be able to do that, I suppose, even during your deployment as well, would have made that a pretty pretty special moment for you. And for those guys listening out there, what are you renowned for, mate? Or what are you well known for around the uh, different parts of, of the world? What's something that you are... Uh, uh, <laughs> I know what you're hitting at. Any, anyone who follows me on Instagram will know this as well. And if you're thinking the mustache, it's not because that comes <laughs> and goes. So I'm up to maybe 18 or 19 countries, including you know some places in Afghanistan, whatever, with non-alcohol, but doing uh, shoeys around the world, <laughs> slightly ticking off, ticking off some goals here and there. 
No, that's fantastic. I love the fact that you can even say that you have, uh, you've done a shoey in Afghanistan on a deployment, albeit alcohol, uh, not a, a non-alcoholic beverage, but it's, no, I love that, man. It just shows your type of uh, the person you are with that bit of, bit of um, humour with you and, and you don't always have to take life seriously, which is, which is awesome. So you then returned back, which, look, like I said, having never been on a deployment, I feel like that would be quite a difficult part to have that break in the middle of it mm. and then have to go back again knowing you're going back for another, what, five months or so? Yeah, yeah. So I was going back for about another five months. Yeah, and that, that was tough. I remember because it was uh, the day after Anzac Day we were flying home and me and Griffo looking at each other a little bit a little bit dusty from the night before and me with a fresh tattoo or two fresh tattoos and whatever, looking at each other going, we could just go AWOL here. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course, we we're never going to, but we, we definitely joked about it, boarding the plane to fly back in. Yeah, that's it. It would, it would be tough, just that mental side of things of kind of going, and no doubt the, the few weeks that you were away would have flown by. And then to know that you've still got a, another five months in a war-torn country uh, as a crew commander, albeit, you know, you're passionate, you love what you're doing, but, you know, at the same time, you're human. And, and no doubt you would have, uh, would have been seeing what all your other mates who are 21 around your age, what they were doing back home. And I'm sure it was oh, vastly yeah, different. Sure. Oh, yeah, it's massively different. But it's been sort of like that through my whole career. You and me have touched on before when we were joking about some stuff through basic training or whatever, that my first ever phone call back home was while my mates were all on schoolies, like <laughs> two weeks after I joined the army. But it's been like that sort of throughout my career. But it's not, you know, it's not that I'm missing out on anything. I'm doing my own stuff and they're doing their own stuff and sort of living, living our best lives. So after we got back, we had to have a mandatory uh, four weeks leave. Yep. which I actually just, I pretty much stayed in Adelaide for a little bit, then went actually home, home, home into Victoria. But that leave actually ended up getting cut short for myself because me and a few other guys then had to go on to what's called Sub 2, like SIOS, which is a uh, corporal's promotion course. So we had to come back early then to jump on, jump on a promotional course, which is just, just part of being in the army doing stuff like that. Then after that, that led into Christmas, New Year, and then that's when I, I headed away again to Europe. You've seemed to travel, I don't know how many countries you've been to, but how many, how many have you been to, do you think? I'm actually trying to add that up in my head now. I'd say it's <laughs> maybe, maybe eight, it'd be between 18 and 20. And I've spent a fair, a fair deal of time in all of them. That trip we were talking about, which I did over Christmas, sort of New Year at the end of 2017, that's when I did the bulk of them. And then I traveled, you know, five or six weeks solo by myself, just through and I flew into, you know, into Finland and traveled Scandinavia and then, and then on from there. Yeah, awesome life experiences, no doubt, mate. And like you said, in the future podcast, no doubt you'll touch on some different stories and the the amazing sort of memories you've learned along along the way. So, yeah, as, so, as long as the as long as they don't get censored, a lot of those stories yeah. that, that come out that come out of uh, traveling Europe. But you know, yeah. all the times I've been been really you know good over there and donated money and everything while I was there. You know, nah. visited church every day. Sure, you had some uh, sort of M- MA or R rated stuff too in there, Willie. <laughs> I think if that was just a, that was for breakfast and then all the X-rated stuff came at night. <laughs> no, it's good. Like I said, you've, you've had a bloody good, intriguing life so far, but it's so... But I think that's sort of what's helped me, you know, get through a lot of, a lot of what's gone on recently is I've looked back and thought, geez, I've, at least I've done a lot in my life. So yeah, you joined Kapuka or joined the army straight from school, three months, went to Singleton for three months, which was kind of infantry training. You moved to Adelaide on, on a two-year two year posting or you were there for two years, sorry. You then got deployed. Uh, at that stage, you're only 20 to Afghanistan on an eight-month deployment. You uh, had your 21st birthday over in Afghanistan while your friends are, you know, hitting bars and doing what all good 21-year-olds do. 
you had an awesome experience in Afghanistan, learn a lot in a war-torn country. As a crew commander, you then experienced many countries in Europe and you're almost up to, to 20 different countries, which is awesome. So you've just had a remarkable, I guess, couple of years since being in the army. And I suppose where I'm about to touch on now is your next, I guess, big chapter in your life. And that's big chapter, that, well, the, the one I'm most famous for, at least. <laughs> yeah, well, look, you are, mate. And it's, yeah, I think that's because just the way you've been going about it. So it, it all started really for you when you started experiencing some headaches. Yeah, yeah. I was, you know, I, I got back off my leave really early last year, pretty much to the day and being really late January, early February, ended up you know, going in for some headaches. Well, I was complaining about headaches for work, at work, sorry, a little bit. And one of my section commanders who had a mate sadly die of a brain aneurysm at about my age, he was like, Willie, nah, 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 you're not sort of struggling through this. You would walk up like, to the med center right now and go see what's going on. And if you don't, that's an auto and I'll charge you sort of thing. Yeah, wow. And so you... Do you think maybe if it wasn't for him, you may have kept putting it off or do you think that was kind of the push you needed? Oh, no, I definitely would have been pushing off because what, what, what happened, and anyone sort of in the medical field will know this, that really early last year, codeine became not an over-the-counter drug to a prescription medication. Now, I was having some, some really bad sort of migraines and codeine was keeping that at bay, but then it, it swapped over to become, you know, you need to actually have a script to get it. So I was like, oh, well... You know, now I, I couldn't really deal with the headaches. Um, so luckily, my section commander, you know, pushed pushed me up there up to the med center. Was there anything else really that you, I guess, your health were you were you still pretty fit and healthy? Uh, was there anything else that kind of seemed off or different about you, or was it kind of just oh, the headaches? No. It was just the headaches. I, I was incredibly fit at the time. But, you know, I spent you know eight and a half months deployed. We just worked out all the time, and then onto a course just before that. Even if I travelled for you know a month and a half you know, just before coming back. But, you know, you're still very, very fit. Just being in the army leaves you fit. The only problem I had, and this is what we've put the headaches down to, was I had a bit of, just from my posture, being in body armour so much the year prior, my shoulders rolled forward a bit, which is really common if you're tight in the chest in the army. And then, yeah, we we guessing that was actually causing the headaches because I went and saw a physio pretty much just after my diagnosis. And then, you know, doing some exercises with him, it actually completely cleared up all my headaches. Well, so you're saying potentially the headaches weren't even part of the brain cancer? No, not at all. According to all three neurosurgeons who are on sort of that I see, so I see three different ones, none of them think this would cause a headache at all. They were actually surprised that it came, that I found it from a headache. They were like, oh, normally this would present as a loss of motor skills or something, not as a headache. So that, that was a bit, a bit of a funny one. Well, that's, yeah, that's, so yeah, that's, I don't know even what you call that, but it's a silver lining or... It's, um, I'm pretty, not sure. It's a hard one. Yeah, it's pretty, Whether pretty it's good. Whether it's a good or a bad thing. Well, look, it's a good thing. I suppose, like, you've, you know, you've, you found out rather than letting it, letting it just sit there and potentially grow and even become worse than it is, I suppose, if that's even possible. But the fact that, I don't know, that's just utter coincidence, I suppose, so that you, yeah, you I had know. this. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> yeah, she's like, because I, yeah, sorry, I thought that you you had these headaches and it's kind of like, yep, the brain tumor, yep, geez, that makes all the sense. The fact you had these headaches. You went off for a brain scan and then, it, you know, the fact that the headaches weren't even as a result of, of the tumour in your, in your brain, that's a, a massive coincidence. But look, let's hope it's, it, was, it was a good thing, like you said. So you went off for this scan and you mm. got the scan results back. And when was it, I suppose, when was the moment 
that you had a bad, because I know you've always, and you still are such an optimistic guy and that's what mm. makes you so amazing. But when was it that you started feeling a little bit kind of uneasy about the whole whole thing with, with potentially yeah, what, well, what you had? Well, I thought originally sort of that morning I went in to see a doctor about my headaches and he wanted, he was like, oh, I'll give you a CAT scan. I'll, I'll send you to go get a CAT scan. I was like, oh, geez, he's going a bit over the top here. Almost a bit embarrassing. And then he sent me, you know, away and I got a scan and then, I got one of my friends to drive me because they didn't want me to drive with, with if the doctor thought something was wrong. Anyway, well, I had the CAT scan done. I was driving back to work as one of the uh, sort of image specialists called me and was like, hey, Matt, I can't tell you because I, I'm not allowed to, but when you arrive back to work, you need to go and see your GP straight away. And I was like, wait, what's going on here? Like, why is the person from the scanning office or from the CAT scan machine calling me on my personal number here yeah no i think and like coming from my own experience too and generally speaking you know some of these specialists and these doctors you know they take take weeks and weeks to, to make an appointment with and and the mm. fact that and i've had that that all unfamiliar sorry familiar but unsort of wanted uh, phone call before when you've we've got this call from a, a specialist or a doctor wanting to to see you straight away you know that just deep down that something's probably not not right yeah, well, I didn't really know. I was like, geez, this is a bit over the top. Anyway, I got back and he was like, look, there's a shady patch, you know, CAT scan. For anyone who knows anything about sort of brain scans, a CAT scan, really not that good. It is really good for bone, but brain terrible. And then I got back to work and he's like, yeah, nah, Willie, you need to go get an MRI this afternoon. And I'm like, oh, geez, my day's all gone here. I'm just running around doing this. And then, you know, those results, you know, I went to my doctor from there and he was like, look, Willie, I can't tell you that much because I'm just a GP but I've booked you in for an urgent appointment with a neurosurgeon. I'm, I was really like, wait, what? What's going on here? Yeah, when, when you hear the bloody, the N-word in terms of neurosurgeon, you know that it's uh, it's pretty pretty bloody serious. Like, hang on a second, neurosurgeon, didn't I bloody just have a have a couple of bloody harmless headaches that was, was due to my yeah, bloody, exactly. my shoulders? So Yeah, and they thought, you know, I must have hit my head on something or whatever, you know, with the shady patch and the doctor was like, oh, look, it's probably just like a benign cyst or... Like, like you've just smacked your head on something or whatever, or you might have just been born with something. You know, it's nothing to worry about. But when he's sending me away, like, oh, I can't answer this. I need you to send you to a specialist. I was like, wait, what's going on here? So you got sent off to the neurosurgeon. And at that stage, you were still pretty optimistic because that's the type of guy you are. But then it was it had that blurry kind of patch in your, from the MRI scan. And then it was, I suppose, the only way to really tell what it was, you had to have a biopsy of that particular mass, I suppose. Yeah, so I went and saw the neurosurgeon in his office and I was sort of like, you know, I was in uniform at the time. It was, it was sort of a place of parade for me. Still really, you know, really like um, optimistic. Oh, this is going to be nothing. Um, and him going, look, I think it is a stage two oleodendroglioma, which is a brain cancer. We'll touch on that later. But what I'm going to have to do, really, I need to actually confirm that's what it is. So I'm going to have to get you, you know, on an operating table within the week, get you down, you know, cut a bit of this out and actually send it away to a pathology to confirm, you know, what his suspicions were, were correct. Yeah. Jesus. How'd you feel when you basically heard, I don't know that bloody medical technology, um, terminology you said at the start, but when he more or less said, mate, I need to confirm it, but it looks like you've got brain cancer, were you still you know, the optimistic Willie then, or surely part of you kind of thought that, you know, shit, I'm just being bloody told I've got brain cancer. I'm 21 yeah, well, at I the think, time, 22 at the time. 
you know, I would have been 21 at the time. But I think the funny thing was I didn't, at that point, I didn't actually really know what that was. I was like, oh, that's just, you know, a medical term for something. I didn't really draw the conclusion between it being, you know, a, a brain cancer. I was like, oh, it's just, you know, whatever that is. I mean, stage 2 oligodendroglioma, that means nothing to me mm. at the point. He just wants to do a surgery and then, you know, I had the surgery and then it was like, I was like so ready to know what it was and I was expecting results within a day. And you may have talked about this off air, that it took six weeks, I think, for memory for any results to come back from that surgery. And that was one of the toughest six weeks of my life. Yeah, well, yeah, we, ha- we have spoken offline about that and that's six weeks I couldn't imagine what you would have been going through during those six weeks because often the, the fear of the unknown is often the most difficult part to I guess, comprehend because you've got that just the mind is so powerful and it can sometimes be bloody deadly or dangerous and it just really just eats you up with with telling you these things you might not want to hear. So having six weeks after being told, look, mate, you've probably got brain cancer, but I'm not sure. However, I'm going to send this off and you'll know in Mm. six weeks. Gee, that must have been bloody full on. Oh, it was. And the thing is with those, with something like, you know, a a brain tumour, the left and right of arc is from anywhere of, oh, this is a benign thing, it's fine, just go back to work, don't worry about it, to, you know, the other arc being, this is going to kill you in a week and it's anywhere between that. <laughs> and for those six weeks, you know, you, you tend to human nature, I guess, almost assumes the worst of, holy, this is, this is, this is super serious, this is going to kill me. And I've chatted about before that right at the end of that six weeks, the day before I was meant to go in to see the doctor to get the sort of what happened, I get a phone call going, oh, hey, Matt, remember when you had that surgery, someone stuffed up and we didn't take enough blood mm. samples, got to come back in, have another blood test, wait another couple of weeks and then come in and get the results. And that, that's when I sort of uh, really started to lose it from there. Yeah, shit, understandably so. And so when that six weeks started to come, come to a close and it was time you had your appointment and you're, you're ready to see your, your surgeon again and, and go through the biopsy results and I suppose to confirm what exactly you have or the extent of what you had was, you how did that day unfold for you? Yeah, so as I waited that extra couple of weeks and sort of, you know, that was probably those those two weeks, I guess it was, was sort of the hardest. That's when, you know, one of my bosses reached out to me and was like, oh, you've really changed your tone on this because I guess he thought, oh, geez, it's really serious here for Willie. But then I actually never saw that neurosurgeon to get those results ended up calling me and saying, look, Matt, I'm actually moving you or referring you on to an oncologist and he will deliver you your results. And at the time, I didn't even know, and you'd be, you'd be incredibly familiar with oncologists, sadly, but at the time, I didn't know what an oncologist was. You know, I was, I was, I was sort of Googling it. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, an oncologist is sort of a, a cancer doctor, so to speak, who does all your chemo and everything. I mean, yeah, my, I got a direct referral onto an oncologist from there. Yeah, so all of a sudden then you're, you're probably knowing that it's it's not great. The fact your neurosurgeon said, look, let your oncologist deal with it for now and and uh, look at your, your treatment options, I suppose. And so when you met up with your oncologist and uh, he, how did he break the, the news to you, I suppose, and how did you feel at that point in time? Yeah, so I, I went there on March 9th, which is the day before my birthday being March 10th, yeah. um, to the oncologist, my GP from work, the original doctor I saw, he came with me just so he could know exactly what's going on and get delivered firsthand. And so did my brother, who was down for my birthday. Um, sort of got in the office, start talking about whatever, show me some scans. You know, and I was still blown away. You know, it's 42 millimetres by 38 millimetre tumour in my head. That's a big tumour. Yeah. And then he sort of went, yep, what your neurosurgeon told you is correct. It is a stage two glioma on your left frontal lobe, on your motor strip. 
And I sort of had to jump in on both of the doctors discussing and I went, wait, is that brain cancer? Are you telling me that I've got brain cancer? Because what you've, what you've told me before doesn't really resonate anything with me. Is this a, a brain cancer? And he's like, well, well, yes, it is. So, yeah, my 20, 22nd birthday the next day uh, wasn't, wasn't the biggest rager for me, if, uh, if you can imagine that. Yeah, wow. So for all those listening out there, if you think you've ever had a shit day, just feel for Willie. He spent his 21st birthday in, the, in Afghanistan on an army deployment. A year later, he found himself in an oncologist room being told the day before his 22nd birthday, being told that he had a form of, uh, I guess, incurable brain cancer. So if you're thinking you've had a, had a shit day, just think of, think of Willie next time you're bloody stuck at traffic and think how bloody... Uh, how full on that must have been for a 22-year-old, uh, 21-year-old, just about to turn 22-year-old, being told that you've got a form of incurable brain cancer and how that uh, how must have been for you, mate. And so when he told yeah. you that, were you still your optimistic Willie or was this, t- was this the time where you, you kind of felt that, you know, shit, I've, I've been dealt a pretty pretty bad hand here? Yeah, look, look, I definitely went through sort of that grieving process of, you know, a bit of why me and feeling sorry for myself and everything, but it almost... I was I didn't really accept it that much. I was still almost in denial. Of like, nah, like this isn't happening. Almost expecting to sort of wake up from from a bad dream uh, that sadly has just kept going. Yeah. So and then uh, unfortunately, you then have to commence uh, treatment, I suppose. And so for those listening mm-hmm. out there, when you say and you say this on your your Instagram page, and you're pretty open about it, when you say it's more or less uh, inoperable and incurable, you mean it's inoperable because basically most surgeons won't operate on it because where it's located in your brain yes i'll I'll touch on that slide so i read i go through it more on my instagram and explain it but so the tumor sits right on my left frontal lobe on my motor strip which controls the right side of my body being my right arm and right leg now of course they can operate like they any they can just cut anything out of you if you if they want but the danger in that if if they do cut it out is that i'll be paralyzed or have some loss of function on the right side of my body and that's why we're sort of at the moment, not operating on this. Yeah, okay, that that makes sense for. Uh, yeah, that actually makes sense now. So that's why they generally call it inoperable because uh, of where it's located. So then, when they say the incurable side, and I know we've mm. touched on on this offline, but so just for those those listening, the general, I know you're you're not big on the averages, and I understand why, but just so what people mean when you say incurable doesn't mean that you know you're going to drop dead tomorrow from this thing but it does mean that generally speaking people with this same condition your life expectancy is is around that kind of what five five to seven year mark is it or yeah yeah around that if you have google that if you google it that's what it says but yeah so so a lot of well pretty much all brain cancer is incurable being you know there's treatments for it of course there's treatments you know chemo radiotherapy some other ones and surgery but those three being the main but on my one, you know, those three, are, you know, they extend your life, but none of them will be like completely get rid of the rid of the tumor. Now, of course, in some, you know, tiny cases that, that does happen fantastically. There was a case, if you saw my Instagram post yesterday, that, that kid who had very similar to me mm. and completely gone. But, you know, as far as average goes, yeah, it's, you know, incurable, but those treatments extend your life. And then, you know, from there, but it will eventually catch up with you and, and kill you with something like this. Yeah, and look, that must be bloody full on to take in at 22. And I suppose you've you've now just completed uh, your ninth month or ninth round of uh, of chemotherapy, which having had mm. four, four months of chemo myself, I couldn't imagine what it would be like having uh, double that again. 
and then to know you've still got another three months on top of that. And I think you said to me, it just gets more and more draining and, and harder each round goes by because your body's obviously been, been hit so hard and it becomes harder and harder to recover each time to know that you've still got three more months of this chemotherapy, mm-hmm. which oh, yeah. just prolongs your life, doesn't necessarily going gonna, to you know, fix it or heal you. That must also be bloody hard to take in. Oh, of course it is. You know, there are definitely thoughts creeping of like, well, why am I doing this? You know, why have I done? Because it'll be a full uh, 12 months of chemo once I'm done. Well, if I've got, you know, say, let's just, let's just say five years left, why am I spending one year of that so sick on, on this chemo? But, you know, it, it definitely does more good than bad chemo, even though, you know, it's got a, it's got a bad rap. I think from a lot of people who don't really know what they're talking about, but you talk to a, a, an oncologist doctor, you know, it's, it's the way to go for living longer with something like this. I suppose looking forward, looking at the future, how do you go with, you know, people, some of your friends uh, saw you at a wedding recently and people start planning, you know, weddings and, and kids. Yeah, and- so, so yeah, that, that, and I've talked to, actually the one who brought that up with me was, so my chemotherapy, the type I do has actually made me infertile. Now I have been to a sperm bank and I've got sperm banked. But some of those things we take for granted, especially being Australian, you know, having kids, owning a house, sort of growing old with a loved one, something like that. I've had to sort of change my sort of outlook on life as that, that that isn't that white picket fence probably isn't going to happen for me in my life, which, you know, is uh, something hard to sort of come up to or accept because you sort of grow up thinking, oh, when I'm older, I'll do this. When I'm older, I'll do this. Where me, it might be, well, I might not actually get that old, but let's let's actually sort of sort of enjoy the here and now and, and move on with move on with what we're doing and live live the best we can day to day and look, you know, more short term goals than long term. And look, that's yeah, it's it's incredibly inspiring way to live your life and, and the fact you've had to adjust uh, adjust that and and kind of embrace it. And like you said, you're ticking off countries on where you visit and you're you're really embracing the the want to help others and and recently you've now created your own initiative which is a tire flipping uh, initiative which uh, I believe yeah. last year you raised individually through obviously the help of others but through your own mm. uh, initiative over fifty thousand dollars which is incredible. Yeah, so it came to uh, fifty two thousand dollars with my tire flips. I'm sure most people here listening will know, but I ran. I wanted to raise some money for brain cancer research because I'd sort of seen what I'd gone through and the limited options for me. And brain cancer affecting, you know, mostly children. That well, this isn't good enough. Let's let sort of let me leave a bit of a legacy and and improve the outcomes for the future. So eventually, it started off as I want to go down to the beach between two jetties, which is two kilometres apart, with some mates, flip a tire between them, and I want to I want to raise two grand, which between sort of, you know, my my platoon or company will be able to do. And then it sort of just uh, took off bigger than I could ever imagine from there. Yeah, wow, it's um, it's awesome, and it's something that you want to do, you want to do every every year and make it an annual thing, which is awesome. So for everyone listening out there, be uh, you know, <laughs> wait out for the Willie's Tire Flipping Challenge again for this year, and I know I'm going to definitely get on board, and I'm going to get heaps of my my army unit up in Brisbane on board, and and it's just a fantastic thing that you're doing. And for those who don't know, brain cancer kills more children than any disease in Australia, and more people under forty than any other cancer. And the survival rate is so low, yet it's one of the least funded. And not only is that sort of helping me leave a legacy of curing this, but it's actually helping me have a sort of a purpose. My purpose used to be a career related, and now it's giving me somewhere to channel this sort of energy of into, you know, organizing these events and doing this and doing that for even mental health stuff. 
it's helping me as much as as much as anyone sort of get through the days and you know being able to think well you know I might not be someone who leaves you know kids and a loved one behind because I won't be old enough but I get to leave a bit of a legacy that one day when you know a kid goes in with a sore head that they go oh yeah no nah, mate no nah, no nah, that's fine we'll give you this sort of magic pill and it's gone when I mean, someone thinks oh shit good on Willie he he's not around but um thank God he raised that you know a couple hundred grand over his life which it'll be to you know make make such a difference in in this and that's help that helps my mental health so much well and that's just you just hearing you say that mate it's i think if everyone if everyone lived with that mentality or that attitude i think the world would would be a better place it's uh it's incredible to to think that you're so passionate in, in doing that like you said and you're realistic in the fact that not for you uh it's for the future generations of young men and women who can potentially benefit from, from all this all this research and all this money raised and and i think that's uh, um, amazing uh, amazing thing to take away from this entire thing that you're making the best out of a bad situation which you you are and you're like you say on your instagram page you know you're living your best life with incurable brain cancer while raising awareness and funds to cure brain mm. cancer so that's kind of your your motto and it's something that you're obviously living your life by and it's something that's uh extremely inspirational mate so um, oh, and i just want to change that stigma that, that cancer is you know someone with a bald head in a hospital and it's not that cancer what well, can be that but but cancer has so many faces that you know cancer can be someone in the arm active in the army who jumps out of planes and travels the world and you can do that with cancer that you know there are you know so many different faces to this and i want to sort of explore not only my my life but others and sort of be like look at the amazing things people still do yes yes they have cancer but that's one percent of who they are yeah no exactly mate and that's i think why i was really drawn to you and and what you stood for and your passions and i think it's uh, it's very similar to what i'm kind of uh passionate about as well and changing that stigma to realize that you know it's not just an older person's illness and and as young men and women we're not invincible and quite often we think that when we're in your 20s and i know i was the same when and we'll touch on my, my story next week but when i was you know in my early 20s I thought I was invincible. No doubt you did too. We, we all think we're invincible and it's um, oh, yeah. just, exactly and just listening to your story. It, it puts that different face on it to go, look at this, look at this young bloke with the mo, 22 years of age. Look at the life he's lived. Look at the attitude he has. You know, he, he's, uh, he's living proof that something like this brain cancer or cancer in general doesn't discriminate. And I think that's extremely uh, empowering to, to so many other mm. people and, I think you are you're already doing such a fantastic job in not only raising the funds, like you said, but the awareness is a huge, huge, amazing part that you're doing because I'm learning a lot about you. And if I'm learning a lot, I can't imagine how many other thousands and thousands of of people are are learning about you. Oh, it's amazing that I've sort of got a platform now. You know, I don't have you know that many followers, but it's amazing I've got a platform that I can actually share with people what I'm learning, and and that is so. You know, I've, I've sort of had a dream before to, you know, speak in front of people and do this and do that. But it's given me, you know, and social media used correctly can give you that platform. I mean, it gives me a platform to share my mind and sort of tell people about, you know, what, what happening, what's happening and, and learn this. And I think that that is so important that people actually realise how common a lot of these things are in the community, but how you can actually make a difference, even if it's not a monetary difference, but by you know, telling someone about this or sharing something can make such a massive difference. No, and that's it, mate. And we'll um, and like you said, even for yourself, it's that mental mental healing too. So, look, it's 
It's been been an honour to to talk with you, mate, for the last forty minutes or so about your uh, your inspirational journey. And I'd oh, be honest, if only everyone who talked to me had that that sort of same <laughs> same outlook. That it's it's been an honour. Some people just think, oh God, will you stop talking? <laughs> yeah. No, look, mate. I think because I can, I guess, relate a bit in such a small way to to what you what you've gone through. I think it just makes me just so intrigued by the way you you handle it all and and how how passionate you are in, in helping others. And I think that's uh, that's what drew drew me to you in the first place and I think I could honestly sit here for hours talking about your story which says something but ultimately we throughout the coming weeks will will no doubt touch on more about your story and and it'll be one of those things I'm sure we'll keep learning more and more about you but thanks everyone for tuning in and and if you've got any questions if you've got any questions at any stage for for Willie obviously today's been uh, all about his, his journey and his story and you know, first, just go follow as Willie.Beating.Cancer because I can just say it is a really uplifting, empowering uh, Instagram where he shares his his story. But, you know, feel free to reach out via the 25 Stay Alive Instagram or or Willie's Instagram or even my Instagram and just, just reach out and hit us up and hit Willie up. Just to expand on that, anyone feel free to ask me absolutely anything about, especially my, my cancer. And don't, don't be shy. If there's something you think that you're like, oh, this might offend him, you trust me, you won't just uh, just absolutely shoot through, and then Hugo's the same. Just just shoot it through, and if we don't know the answer, we'll find it for you. But definitely don't feel like oh, there's something I want to ask, but I feel bad. No, 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 don't just 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 shoot through to us. That's a good point, and I think that's such a such a, a powerful part about this podcast is we are both just so open in sharing our stories and talking about anything you have. So we both truly mean that. Please hit us up with anything. And look, we'll, we'll, we'll finish up there and we'll, we'll wrap things up for the, the first ever installment of 25 Stay Alive podcast. Uh, hopefully you guys have taken something out of it. And look, if the one thing you want to take away from it, it's the one thing I know I've taken away from it, is by hearing Willie's amazing, inspiring story, If even if it just changes your own perspective on your own life and your own problems, look, that's the main thing. And, and just really just uh, realize what this guy is going through, but how positive and inspiring, uplifting he is. To, to raise this awareness to help others. It's it's extremely uplifting. So no, thanks. Thanks for being so open, Willie, and thanks for sharing your story, mate. No, absolutely. I'm more than happy to share it and I'm so glad that I can share it. Before we go, Willie, it's something I want to try and do after every single episode. Is I want right, to finish do a shoot? <laughs> <laughs> I want to both finish doing a shoot. No, that would would <laughs> I want to finish, mate, on a positive note. We have talked about some pretty pretty full on full on mm. stuff which it is it's important to do so but i want to finish off every single episode uh, regardless of who we interview on a positive note and i suppose for today's episode what i want to finish on for the listeners out there is that a few days ago or last week i should say willie had a his most recent mri scan to see where his brain cancer was at and how did those results go mate yeah, so for those interested, I mean, my most recent scan, if you go, it's right near the top of my Instagram. But yeah, there has been a slight reduction of my tumor over the, the past nine months, mainly of the density of it and a more defined edge being it's not sort of a diffusion between tumor and brain. It's more, you know, it, there's no diffusion there. It's more of a separate edge, which is good for, good for everyone. But then even the better news, and I'll sort of try and trump you here a little bit, is my post yesterday. There was a little little fella named Tyler who's five years old. He got his two yearly scan for a brain tumor on the exact same day I got mine, Ugh. and it's completely gone. He, he had a surgery; that's all they could do, but it's completely gone. And I got sent photos of him playing in the mud, running around like nothing had ever happened. He's got an awesome scar on his head, 
but it's completely gone and that trump sort of all mine and that's made me so happy and those scans and his story are actually on my most recent post and so that that's my happy news as well no that is awesome we'll both share some happy news and that is today's happy news and if everyone wants to go see what willie's referring to his name is tyler he's a three-year-old boy and he uh he's just been essentially cured of brain cancer and i think it's an amazing uplifting story and and something that we definitely are finishing on a positive. So thanks again, everyone. Be sure to tune in next week. We'll aim to release weekly episodes uh, talking all things health and wellbeing and uh, interviewing uh, inspiring people along the way. So thanks, guys. Thank you. You've been listening to the 25 Stay Alive podcast. Subscribe on iTunes or Spotify to get fresh new weekly episodes. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at 25 Stay Alive. And feel free to send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time.